Before we get into our show today, I just want to state that as of this recording, SAG-AFTRA and the Writers Guild of America are on strike as we speak. Since these episodes will focus on films that were written by actual people, whether they were part of the WGA or not, I figured I would address the elephant in the room, so to speak. The Lone Screenplay nominee podcast endorses those creative artists who are picketing for better wages and do not be replaced by AI. We hope you guys can get a justified deal done with those greedy snakes in Hollywood. If you're listening to this and don't agree as to why these wonderful people are out on strike, you might want to start reading the room, especially you, Bob Iger. When you have people like Jane Fonda or even Meryl Streep out there picketing, you know you messed up. If anyone is interested in supporting those who are striking, I'll make sure to post in the description where you can donate to those in need during this unfortunate time. The last word I'll say to the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, please pay the money. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Lone Screenplay Nominee Podcast, where we talk about films that were solely nominated for an Oscar in the writing categories. I'm your host, Matthew Anderson, and today we have Miles Hughes, who is an actor slash filmmaker and is a co-host on Awards Radar Podcast. Welcome to the show, Miles. How are you doing today? I'm great, Matt, and thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here on your inaugural episode. Yeah, thanks. again, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, be, uh, having you being on here despite the uh, a couple of uh, hiccups and delays along the way. But, you know, that's life. It happens. Um, Absolutely. So before we start uh, our review for the uh, show, we're going to our review for the movie we're going to do for this episode. I have a couple questions I want to ask uh, you, Miles, if you don't mind uh, answering some of these. Uh, would you care to explain to our listeners, for those who aren't familiar with who you are or what you do, uh, you know, what is it exactly, you know, what do you do for Awards Radar podcast or even what is it about? Yeah, totally. So um, Awards Radar is a site uh, started by my friend and um, I guess technically he's my boss, but I don't treat him that way. Uh, Joey Maggotson. And uh, he has, of course, been, you know, well, we have both been covering awards in some way, shape or another for well over a decade. Um, I started all the way back in high school, personally. I think he did, too, or at least early college. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so he started awards radar a couple of years ago and invited me to come along for the ride. And truthfully, most of what I do there is I'm the co-host on the podcast and I'm the regular there. I do write the occasional article. Um, frequently, uh, my schedule doesn't allow me to do much more than that just because like Matt mentioned, I'm also an actor and a filmmaker. Um, I've got a couple of short films that are out and about on YouTube that I'm sure I'll get to sprug at the end. Um, but you know, otherwise I just, I love talking about movies. I love the Oscars. I love all this kind of stuff. So I just love having a format to go on about it. And just double checking, uh, you're going to be in a play in the next couple months. Am I correct in saying that? You are. Thank you very much. Yes. It's called the play that goes wrong. Uh, and it's going to be set up in uh, the Albuquerque little theater running September 8th through 24th. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, because I was like, wait, isn't Miles in a, an upcoming play he'll be doing? Okay. Well, I can tell you. Oh, yeah. I can tell you this, though, from my own experience with high school and a little bit of community college. Um, I wish you the best of luck with that. And hopefully uh, nothing goes terribly wrong with the production, not only just through rehearsals, but on the actual show itself. Oh, thank you very much, especially because it's a show where everything's supposed to go wrong by design. So doing things wrong on purpose gives it a whole nother layer of complexity that I can't wait to get into. Speaking of performance in arts, uh, it's a lot. It's really uh, tough for me to ask anyone in general or even to answer this question uh, of what their favorite film is, so to speak. So I might as well ask you, maybe put a little bit of a spin on it. uh, What's your favorite genre of film? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because I have my favorite genres, but the funny thing is when I think about like my favorite films, it's not necessarily films within those genres, which is kind of interesting. Um, Because like I would say my favorite genre just on its own uh, would be horror because I think horror has so much potential complexity within it and so many subgenres within it. 
uh, that it can kind of take on so many different uh, forms. Uh, anyone who follows me on Twitter or on Awards Radar will know that every uh, October, my wife and I do 31 Days of Halloween, where we go through 31 different horror movies. Uh, but it's all, you know, horror and horror adjacent stuff. So, you know, we're doing your Nightmare on Elm Streets, but we're also doing like Paranorman and Hocus Pocus, or, you know, we'll throw like an audition in there and, you know, some stuff from the 80s and just a real grab bag. And you really get to see all the variety that the genre has to offer. Nice. Yeah. I Yeah, I, I, the horror is definitely a genre that I would like to explore a bit more of uh, personally. Um, I'm pretty sure just like any other genre for as many great ones you get through great movies, you get through in a certain genre. You also get to wade through a lot of the crappier ones. And that's part of the reason why I haven't seen a whole lot of horror movies. Uh, you know, like the nightmare on Elm streets. I haven't seen a whole lot of, I haven't even seen any of the Friday the 13th uh, films, except for the, the shitty reboot they did with the uh, produced was it by platinum dunes. I think. Um, oh yeah, it was part of a wave of those. Yeah. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There's you know for every masterpiece, there are absolutely you know ten to twenty pieces of crap that you got to wade through. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So I, like I said, uh, once again, I'm I'm really grateful that you're here on the show. Uh. And today we're gonna uh dig we're gonna uh segue into our discussion for our 2019 film Knives Out. Just to let the audience know, this won't be a beat-by-beat bulletin point presentation uh, like you hear on other channels that I I may have been on in the past, uh, such as the Fast and Furious films, where, I kid you not, it took us, like, I think three and a half hours. It was, like, a a whole group of us discussing Furious 7 for three and a half hours long, and the the host, uh, who I have to give credit for, for trying to, you know, cobble the whole thing together and make sure we were on track had to edit it in, into two different parts, but it was it was nuts. But this won't be like that at all uh, for our episode today uh, or the, for the show that I am intending on doing. Uh, but we will be discussing major spoilers for our discussion for the film we're uh, talking about today. If you haven't seen Knives Out yet and want to hear our full thoughts on it, I'd suggest you watch the film first and then come back afterwards to hear us talk about it in detail. So Knives Out was directed and written by Ryan Johnson, famously known for Star Wars, The Last Jedi and Looper. After working on a 2005 film, Brick, Ryan came up with the basic concept for this film and expressed interest in making an Agatha Christie inspired murder mystery film back in 2010. It wasn't until after the press tour for The Last Jedi did Ryan finally sit down and spent seven months working on the screenplay. Some of the stories and films he was inspired to create this material were Murder on the Orient Express, Clue, and Godsford Park. Ryan Johnson assembled his cast in 2018 after his script was sold to distributors at Toronto International Film Festival the same year. One note I do want to bring up in regards to the cast was Michael Emmett Walsh replaced Ricky Jay as the latter had passed away during production. This was also Christopher Plummer's final film performance he shot before he passed away on February 5th, 2021. Knives Out premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival and was released theatrically on November 27th, 2019 with a worldwide gross of $311 million on a production budget of $40 million. Including its sole Oscar nomination for original screenplay, the film was also nominated for a BAFTA a Writers Guild Award nomination in the original screenplay category, along with getting three Golden Globe nominations and three Critics' Choice Award nominations. Uh, In terms of what the premise is, I'll just give you the quick logline. A private detective by the name of Benoit Blanc analyzes through a web of lies while while questioning Harlan Thrombey's dysfunctional family after he's murdered. Uh, And for... uh, just to double check with Miles here, our, our our guest, I wanted to ask if this was your first uh, time watching the movie, and if not, do you recall what your initial thoughts were on the film when you first had seen it? Yeah, absolutely. So I saw this one in theaters. Um, I was already sort of very much looking forward to it. I've I've been on board with Ryan Johnson ever since I saw Brick in theaters oh, way wow. back in uh, 2005. Yeah, I I want to say because that made me think about it. I want to say when we saw that in theaters, they were still projecting it on film. That's how long ago that feels like. 
Um, but yeah, I, so yeah, from Brick onwards, I've always felt like he has just an uncanny knack for genre and whichever one he tries to focus on, he tends to have a way of sort of subverting it while still relishing in the things that make each genre fun. So whether that be about con artists or sort of a hard boiled noir or what have you, he's, he's putting his own spin on it while still very much respecting what came before. And uh, I think that absolutely translates to the Agatha Christie style murder mystery that you get in Knives Out. I think you see in every detail of the film his reverence for the genre and his reverence for some of the great stories that came before. But at the same time, he's sort of interrogating the tropes and sort of trying to subvert your expectations without necessarily being cutesy about it. I know The Last Jedi gets a lot of I feel undeserved flack for like being more about subverting expectations than anything of substance. But I think what sets Ryan Johnson apart as a storyteller is his ability to use that particular storytelling tool, not just as a gotcha, but as a way to sort of make you reconsider everything that's come before and sort of enrich everything overall by giving it that additional layering. Interesting. Um, yeah, you actually come to think of it, Looper was another case. It's been a while since I've seen Looper, maybe about a good decade or so. But I remember Looper was another case of a film that was uh, that played around with the tropes within its own genre while also doing some new takes on it, you know, with the whole time travel thing and the science fiction elements to it as well. And uh yeah yeah very much so what was your reaction towards this on your recent rewatch for the movie compared to when you first saw it sure i mean it's kind of interesting with this one because truthfully i i do go back i it's i've gone back to it a few times since i've seen it okay so because i want i've owned it on blu-ray for a hot minute now um which is great because if it's not on streaming i can still watch it anyway support physical media um and uh, so, yeah, it's it's one that we go back to, not like a ton, but I would say, you know, once a year, every two years, we've circled back around. And obviously, we, we uh, revisited it last year um, in anticipation of Glass Onion. Um, and then, yeah, I rewatched it um, probably sometime in the past week uh, for this. So it's um, it's one that is always fun to go back to because of how intricately layered you know, speaking of the lone screenplay, the screenplay is uh, and how much it sort of rewards a rewatch because now you're looking for certain details or you realize little mini things like, you know, little gestures, little things that you couldn't possibly know on the first watch would be significant. Suddenly, like the whole plot feels like it hinges on like what direction someone's looking at a key moment or like little things like that. So, um, yeah, when you're going back to it, whether analytically or just you know, having a good time. I feel like it's just such a rewarding experience. Um, if I may then turn it around, what was your sort of uh, experience with it? I remembered. Uh, so to make a long story short, I remembered seeing this, I think on either uh, it might've been black Friday. I saw this in the theaters. Cause I, uh, or maybe it was the day before, uh, uh, day before Thanksgiving. Um, I had watched. I know it was that holiday weekend. Yeah. yeah. And I, I remembered I had uh, earlier that day, I was going to go see a beautiful day in the neighborhood by myself. Sure. And then I remembered uh, driving back to the house to pick up my brother. And we were going to drive all the way back near the theater to spend time with our dad. And we were going to watch knives out. And uh, yeah, like as far as like my own history with Ryan Johnson, I probably haven't even seen nearly as many of Ryan's films as you have. I think the only ones I've seen were this, well, the, the knives out movies, uh, the, the last Jedi and looper. I think that might've been the only thing I've seen from him, but I, you know, okay. So if that's the case, then you're only missing a uh, break in the brothers blue. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that's pretty much it. But it, I mean, you know, I, I like Ryan Johnson a lot. And even with this movie, I definitely appreciate him as a, a writer and director. Um, and on, on, I will say on, on my first watch, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. And even when we started the film off with the whole, um, uh, uh, I think it was uh, Marta Cabrera, uh, my, the Anna mm -hmm. Darmus character, um, I was a little bit worried that the film had sort of revealed all of its cards. Uh, because whenever, whenever you see these murder mysteries, you know, because there's been lesser quality films where they're like, Ooh, we've showed, you know, ooh, you know, we actually have more cards under the table, but it's like, no, you showed your first cards in like the first 20 minutes and you're expecting us to be like, 
ooh, remember that trick you're not supposed to remember? Uh, well, we're going to reveal that trick later in the film. And it's like, no, you ruined it. <laughs> but as the film progressed, I was thinking to myself, oh, okay, that's why he, you know, he included the whole, uh, you know, Marta Cabrera interaction with uh, Christopher Plummer's character, Harlan, uh, and revealing, like, we need to set this up. So by the time we get to the finale, it'll tie back into what our conclusion is, and it's going to be completely different from what some of you haven't expected, you know? And yeah, so like I, I enjoyed it on a first watch. I showed it to my grandma during the COVID pandemic, and I'm not even sure if we even talked about this, but I created a whole list of films for that my grandma and I have been watching since the pandemic started, and we've been quarantining. Obviously, we're not quarantining as much because it's not that big of an issue, but it's still going on. Um, but it, we're still adding more films to that list. Uh, and along the way, we've seen some other classics and some really good ones. But yeah, Knives Out was another one. And uh, when my grandma had watched it, she thought, oh, wow, this is actually uh, a pretty interesting movie. And definitely was some it was something I was not expecting. And I got to say on a rewatch this time around now after seeing Glass Onion and I've now seen it a third time, my thoughts on it are still the same. I, I agree with you that the screenplay, what what's so rewarding about it is it's very detailed and there's a lot of cues you could pick up on throughout the movie. One of which I actually really liked was the attention to detail in terms of the way the character, the, the Thromby family interacted not only with each other, but with characters outside of their house. For example, the very beginning of the movie, I loved how the way that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's character with uh, J Don Johnson, the way they interact with uh, Marta Cabrera, it was interesting and unique. And it definitely showed uh, like what their personalities was like already with just a few lines of dialogue. You know, like the way that Don Johnson, you know, when he interacts with her and she's like, hey, how are you doing? Uh, and, you know, he's on his phone the whole time texting someone or. You yeah, know, yeah. Games. And even with Jamie Lee Curtis, it's very like this passive, like, oh, how are you doing? You know, I wish I wish we were there for the uh, I wish you were there for the funeral, but I got outvoted and and things like that. Even with Martin, uh, Michael Shannon is another one, too. It's like, I wish you were at the funeral, but I got outvoted, too. Yeah, they all suspiciously got outvoted. Yeah, exactly. And and I thought that was interesting. And and just, yeah, like the, the screenplay as a whole, I think is like the best part about the movie, not just with how the like Ryan Johnson really did take the time to look through like what are some possible mistakes that I'm going to get into. And let's try to, you know, either tidy up the, the in a rewrite or let's try to tie that into the end of the film. Like even with the prop knife that Harlan brings up in the movie, yeah, like no yeah. one could really tell um, uh, the difference between a prop knife and a real knife, and that ties into the very finale of uh, uh, the Chris Evans character as well um, when he tries yeah. to stab uh, Marta Cabrera. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think you're right on point about all of that. Um, one of my other favorite running gags throughout the family, speaking of sort of uh, using the writing to sort of inform characterization, uh, kind of similar to the outvoted gag is the whole, uh, you know, oh, your housekeeper from Bolivia or, oh, your housekeeper from Chile. Like nobody knows where she's actually from, yeah. but they all like kind of throw it off like they know or like they care. Or like there's the one bit where she kind of gets sucked into like kind of awkwardly having to have a conversation about immigration yep. issues and like she's clearly uncomfortable with it but they're also acting like oh you're part of the family up to a point mm -hmm. and um and I, going back to you uh what you were saying before about you know potentially uh ryan johnson revealing his cards too early with the reveal um i want to say about like 30 minutes in give or take that um that marta you know at least as far as we're meant to understand at that point, it looks like she killed him. And uh, yeah, I think a, a lesser story or a lesser filmmaker, that would absolutely be a case of giving up the goose too soon. But I think what it does here is it lets the first little stretch of it play out in kind of a little closer to maybe the more stereotypical murder mystery beats that we're expecting going in. But then you get that reveal and then the murder mystery continues. But now we have this whole side story happening concurrently where you've got her kind of in the background of the investigation trying to throw off the investigation, which gives it a whole nother layer, not just of entertainment value, but then sort of adding on top of the mystery. Eventually, when then in the third act, we find out that even the assumptions we made about that 
are then also turned on their head. So again, it's like this sort of nesting doll of ideas where like each time you think or like, you know, the glass onion metaphor from his next film, each time you sort of peel it back, you sort of you, you learn a little bit more about it. And suddenly the things that um, that seem so innocuous at first are suddenly so vital to the results and the climax of the film, like you said, with the prop knife and with, I mean, honestly, a million other things. Yeah, and the other the other aspect too in terms of the screenplay I really liked was I, I mentioned it a little bit briefly before, but with uh, the way that Anna de Armas interacts with Christopher Plummer, like they established early on the kind of relationship they they have, and you know that's sort of like one of the main emotional cruxes as to why we should care about Marta Cabrera. It isn't just because her. Uh, her uh, mother and her sister are undocumented uh, uh, citizens, but it's also there to establish, you know, that they were really close friends and almost like, you know, uh, you know, she was treated almost like another, uh, you know, child or grandchild of uh, uh, Harlan Thrombrey's. And I, I thought that was like the, a really like hiring someone as good of an actor as Christopher Plummer really does help. But what also helps too is again, going back to that screenplay where if you make us care by even just doing simple things, like just having them play a, a game of go. And then they're, you know, they're like joking, antagonizing each other. Like, you know, uh, you know, this is a, uh, uh, this is the threat I'm calling the, uh, uh, what was it? The, uh, double uh, uh, ARP uh on you you know yeah. things like that i was like oh wow like they you know like right like i said ryan johnson does a good job establishing us to care about marta's situation and it isn't just oh she's into a problem you know uh, and so on one other aspect i i think also works very strongly in the movie is obviously benwan block um you know daniel craig sure. is a really good actor we've seen him time and time again uh you know delivered some really good acting before even in in another mystery film that i think is quite underrated uh girl with the dragon tattoo where yes which in hindsight kind of feels almost like an audition for this yeah yeah and and the and but it and it's not it's definitely an audition for this movie but at the same time the tone and vibe is completely different. Oh no, the t it, it couldn't be more different. But in terms of how he fits into that like mystery thriller kind of vibe, like I don't know, there's something about the way that Daniel Craig like recites evidence and kind of goes over the fine details of a case that's just endlessly compelling. Yeah, and even with the uh, the southern accent, which did take me back a little bit, I was like, wait, what's going on here? And then it took me a while to get used to that for me at least. Totally. No, I've heard that before. It's it's not what you're expecting. I, I think it helped for some people that um, he did a similar accent in Logan Lucky like a year or two before. Right. So that kind of helped like maybe buffer it out a little bit. But yeah, it is. He's going broad. He's taking big swings with it. But I think because the character is meant to be so flamboyant and ostentatious by design, I think the fact that his accent sounds a little bit larger than life and almost a little put on kind of only adds to that. And, you know, not to, you know, steer away from this movie too much, but we do see, you know, kind of the advancement of that in Glass Onion when he starts, you know, getting into even more fanciful costumes and like, you know, kind of letting his more, you know, effeminate quirks sort of, you know, come out. And I don't know, it's just, it's such a great sort of modern take on like the Hercule Poirot or, you know, Miss Marple kind of like detective character where they're a little quirky, but they're also really good at sort of getting you to let your guard down around them. Yeah. And uh, this is easily way better than the, uh, the, well, at least the, the Brana's take on uh, Hercule Poirot. Oh God. You know, yeah. just in terms of like the filmmaking alone. And I, I think Kenneth Brana can be a good actor, but in my opinion, as a director, he's just not that great with telling stories. Unless if it's something like Shakespeare stuff where it's like, okay, he's pretty good at this. Um, yeah. But no, I don't disagree. Yeah. Uh, the other aspect to the film I did want to talk about that ties into Marta Cabrera was I like that they establish not only her, her struggles and her relationship with the, with Harlan Thrombey and even with Benoit Blanc, who they end up teaming up together as the film progresses. But the one aspect I, I feel could have in lesser hands of a director and and or writer, the idea of her puking every time she's telling a lie would easily be thrown as more of like a, a, a very, what do you call it? Like gross out gag. 
that you would see from like a team a team comedy flicked and sure and i like that they they established that as a way of you know getting information from marta and it again it ties into the finale the one aspect about it i'm not sure if you'd agree with me on this but the one uh, thing about it i wasn't that i thought he uh ryan johnson did kind of cheat a little bit with was when they were out in the backyard and uh benoit blanc notices the footprints and uh marta cabrera is stepping on the footprints and then as benoit blanc's trying to tell her don't you know don't step don't uh, don't move and she's like what 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 you know what what are you saying and she just you know immediately steps on them because she's trying to cover her tracks and i get that like later on where it's revealed that those tracks could have easily been ransom uh ransom's um uh, footprints but at the same time, I thought that was a little bit of a cheat for me in terms of like establishing that. But overall, I thought that was, you know, like, you know, it, it, it clearly outside of that one scene, it clearly established, you know, whenever she lied or clearly was lying, she always puked and so on. But I wanted to ask if you agreed or disagree with me on that part. Sure. I, th- I think that's one of those. I mean, you could call it a cheat, but I think it does get around it because she's not. Like, she's not being mistruthful per se. She's not saying words that aren't correct. She's just, you know, pretending that she can't hear, which I guess that does sort of like fall on like that kind of gray scale of like, where does pretending and lying like what's the line between them? You know what I mean? So that that's kind of up for interpretation. But I think they make it consistent enough with every other time that it happens that it's specifically when she says something mistruthful. Um, I do think what is so brilliant about that gag and what helps maybe prevent it from feeling like you said, like sort of a gross out gag you would see in a lesser comedy is that the gag itself is less about, you know, the spectacle of it. Like when she does throw up, it tends to be like into a vase or like, you know, kind of off screen or in a cup or something like it's not about linger on it, lingering on it. It's more about. If anything, it makes the character incredibly relatable yeah. because it helps put you in her shoes of that sort of tension of, you know, there's this consequence and, you know, she's like the worst possible person to have to cover her tracks for a thing like this because it requires finding ways to create scenarios where she doesn't have to lie, which is like in many ways so much more compelling than if she was just straight up lying to him. And again, I think Marta in many ways is the screenplay and just the movie's secret weapon. Yep. And, you know, going back to how fanciful and flamboyant Benoit Blanc is, I think you need a grounded character like Marta to sort of give the audience that perspective and give them that relatable window and a character that they can kind of root for in all of this. Because everyone else is, I mean, the Thromby family is kind of the worst. Like, they're all the worst for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. And one of them is the killer, to be sure. But none of them are great people. So to have that sort of heart at the center of everything, I think helps sort of the nastiness that happens around her go down much smoother. And I think, yeah, it creates that sort of compelling back and forth with her and with Blanc, where she has to sort of work around this massive uh, deficiencies she has. And then the only time they do linger on the gross outness of the throwing up is when she does it all over Ransom at the end, which is the perfect time to do it. Yeah, and the fact that she was able to hold it in after she got that call exactly. from, the, from the the doctors. Yeah, uh, I'm actually glad you brought up the the dynamic duo, but, you know, like the fact that Marta is more the grounded character and Benoit Blanc sort of the quirky character. Um, because I, I feel like in a lesser film, like, let's say Wild Wild West, in my opinion, both sure. of the characters are quirky in their own ways but neither of them are even grounded and that was yeah they're not different enough yeah and that was part of my my biggest issue with that film was that like okay you're you're clearly trying to do comedic bits here but it's not working because not only are the jokes not funny but also the interactions between the two of them aren't genuine and neither one of you plays this like grounded area or play a grounded character or within your performance and i and that's you know that's another problem with all these like dynamic duos that you'd see and like when we get to later on to the lethal weapons uh, sequels like the the farther we get away from that first one the the more cartoonish both of the characters are in that one too yeah. and i want to also circle back around because you brought up an interesting point too 
with Marta Cabrera in that, you know, we've already established that her mother and her sister are uh, illegal uh, uh, citizens. And I find it really interesting, and I didn't notice this until this rewatch, is that with this and Glass Onion, I find it very strange, and maybe this is what the intention was for Ryan Johnson, is that he wrote these two films around a very crucial time that we were in with America because, you know, uh, Knives Out was created during, you know, uh, Trump's presidency. And I'm pretty sure there was like a whole, you know, idea of not idea, but like this, um, uh, what do you call it? Mentality of like, you know, we need to, you know, put, put this, push this agenda of getting rid of these illegal uh, citizens out of the United States and go back to where they're, wherever they came from. And even with Glass Onion, it was also written not just during the pandemic, but it also focused, played kind of a central role around the, the, the time that the characters were living in. And I find that really interesting that Ryan Johnson managed to do that twice in a really interesting and compelling way that felt different from each other, but also kind of worked within their own story. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's something he's talked about in interviews where if you look back at like the old Agatha Christie or sort of similar type murder mysteries, they often do have a very specific sense of time and place. Like a lot of them are like either just before or during or just after World War II or, you know, the, you know, the events that happen like tie into whatever's happening in world history right now. Like it would be one of those things where the the politics or whatever was happening at the time wasn't the central thing, but it gave it this very specific grounding. And I think that's what he's doing in a modern sense. Like Knives Out isn't about immigration. It's not about Trump in the specific way, yeah. but by letting those things fill in the like the background color, essentially, by letting that inform the the texture of the movie and certainly it it gives the dynamics between the characters a whole different light, especially when they actively acknowledge and sort of, so that way it like in a roundabout way, even though it makes it very of its time, it kind of makes it a little more timeless because it commits so much to being this thing while still being very deliberately anachronistic with all the mystery tropes and the very nature of the sort of genius detective character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, yeah, that's something I, I'm I'm not familiar with a whole lot of Agatha Christie uh, uh, stories or, you know, uh, so I I'd be curious to see going back, you know, if I ever get around to these films or, you know, these films that were or stories that were inspired by Ryan Johnson to create these two movies. I'd be curious to know a bit more of like, OK, I could see where he got some of the influence it was because I was rewatching Clue the other night and, uh, I, you know, because I it's been a long time since I'd seen it. And rewatching that, I'm like, yeah, I could definitely see, uh, you know, the vibes from this, from Clue, and how Ryan Johnson implemented that into these Knives Out movies, particularly the first one. And uh, the other note I want to uh, bring up, since uh, even though this was, despite this only being a lone screenplay nominee, I want to bring up the fact that uh, some of the production design I thought was pretty good, because I thought, you know, I, I was told apparently the Christopher Plummer painting that we see all throughout the house with him in the chair was done through CG because at the time of filming, they didn't have like a full painting uh, uh, render done in time for shooting it, but they got it finished afterwards. But there's other aspects to the house. I really liked the, uh, who was her name? Uh, Meg. When Meg, who's Joni's uh, daughter uh, is trying to get the, 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 you know, the stash off of, uh, uh, you know, an area it's in a like little drawer with the statue on it. That's, you know, that's shaped like an angel with, you know, with them looking like they're shushing someone. Yeah. And, yeah. and then that also ties back in, I think later on when it's revealed that the, the maid had also put the toxicology report in there or made a copy of it and put it in that same drawer. I thought that was pretty interesting overall. I'm just looking through the rest of my notes. Well, while you're doing that, I'm actually glad that you brought up the production design because that was the thing besides the screenplay that I was genuinely shocked uh, to see the film not get nominated for because I think it's I think it's genuinely stellar work. I mean, first of all, uh, Lakeith Stanfield's character has, I think, a, a line at one point about um, Thrombi that the man basically lived on a clue board. Yep. And I think that's a great sort of starting point in terms of 
visualizing this house that we spend so much of the movie in where there's all these little details like the painting like you said um which you know it kind of looks like the facial expression subtly changes throughout the movie depending on what's going on and like little things like i i love uh his mug the my house my coffee my rules yeah that was great uh which which ends up playing perfectly into the film's final shot which i just love so much yeah um and uh, yeah all the little details throughout the house like you know you see his books but you see the little things and the little trap doors and the way things sort of fold into each other uh, it's just it's so inspired and it's there's so much little details within the details. And then, of course, that um, the chair with like sort of the inverse Game of Thrones style, you know. Oh, yeah, uh, that uh, was great. Circle of uh, knives. Yeah. That that's like an incredible just piece of set design. Yeah, uh, I'm actually discovering this right now as uh, as we speak. Um David Crank, who was the production designer on Knives Out, did get an Oscar nomination. Uh, it was a year later, though, for News of the World. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I will agree. Yeah, the production design is really good. And we'll probably talk a bit more about what other like possible nominations this film could have gotten. But I remembered the production design category that year was already really stacked with, in my opinion, some really, really impressive nominees, uh, so to speak, within their own creative ways with like parasite irishman and then once upon a time in hollywood so i i could i could see why it wasn't in to begin with but it, it would have been nice if it managed to get in period but I, I i'm pretty sure the art director skill did nominate it for the category for production design for them that sounds right as as joey is fond of saying at awards radar it's it may very well have been like the six or seven you know out of the five. Oh yeah definitely i i did love uh some of the other lines in the film with Michael Shannon, when he's, you know, when he's talking to Ransom, he's like, how about some more cookies? You want some more cookies? And he's like shoving it yeah. in his face. I thought that was great. And even like we got to talk if we, if we can about Chris Evans in the film, which I, in my opinion, from what I've seen of Ryan Johnson's films, this might be my favorite character Ryan's made with Chris Evans. Oh, character. OK. Um, just because I like first off, it was refreshing and it was nice to see Chris Evans showing off a bit more of his like comedic range. Not that he, he's never done so before. Like I mostly I'm whenever I think of Chris Evans, I think of mostly his time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as Captain America. And it was it was kind of refreshing for me to see him do a bit more of dramatic work like this. And even just the way his character's thinking, and I it just I really like the way his character is written too. Not just with like the funny uh, quips, but even with just the way that his character is presented in the film. Like I was reading it, uh, I was online uh, an hour or so ago, finding out that Ryan Johnson's intention with the costume designer Jenny Egan, I think it heard the name was the costume designer on the film. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, where they wanted to have ransom's look be you know very you know like it, it's very flashy and kind of expensive but it ha but it's not really properly taken care of and it mm -hmm. kind of plays into the into that personality of ransom almost like it kind of a foreshadowing of what would happen if he were given his share of the money uh, where you know it's obviously you know like hey look i'm a rich guy but i'm not really taking care of a whole lot of things in my own ways and so i thought that was interesting and and yeah and I, I i still get a crack up at uh my favorite line from him was when he said to the family, uh, I think this could be the best thing to happen to all of you. And yeah. it ties and that's I'm pretty sure that's what his parents said to him is like, yeah, this is the best thing that could happen to you for being cut out of the will. Exactly. So then he gets to throw it back at them. Yeah. And so I thought that was really funny. There's a couple other things I'll I'll mention as we're we're wrapping up soon. I did find some of the editing at times to be pretty good, particularly when uh, Michael Shannon's character shows up at Anna de Armas's house. Oh, yeah. And there's like the intense close ups on like him walking with the cane and like tightening his grip on things. Yeah, that's really effective. I yeah. Thought. And it shows the like claustrophobia that from Marta, Marta's point of view with like the letter she's seeing. And then all of a sudden he's there at her door like, hey, what's up? You know, mm -hmm. you know, I thought that was uh, that was really good editing. I'm looking through here. Uh, we also have to thank Ryan Johnson for telling us that no villains are not allowed. No villains are allowed to hold an iPhone, so to speak, or have one on uh, screen with them. I thought that was a pretty interesting note that he pointed out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, going back real quick to the opening, I thought it was great when we were able to cut around with Jamie Lee Curtis's character, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, and uh, Tony um, uh, Tony Collette, 
when we got around to each of their their characters and the way that they inter- they their reactions were very different from not just the way they interacted with Benoit Blanc. You know, Jamie Lee Curtis is very strict. And he's like, if you think I'm going to give up any of my family's secrets, you're dead wrong. And then, uh, I'll, and then it cuts immediately to Don Johnson's like, yeah, of course they had an argument over the next room. You know, they were talking about the book deals going on. I thought that was pretty funny. And even with the way that uh, he, you know, presses a key on the piano to tell the detectives, okay, let's try to move this, uh, this uh, interrogation along so we can get to the next person. You know, just, it, it really does show like, again, detail in the writing and even the way the actors put enough detail into their own personality and characters to make them stand out. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And I think what's brilliant sort of to piggyback off of your thoughts there, um, what's brilliant about that whole sequence is that because it comes quite early in the film and with a lot of these characters, it's the first time or only the second time that we're meeting them. Um, And so you're learning sort of the core information that you need to about them for the mystery to then progress. But like it never feels like exposition. It always feels like this is important information that the characters would be talking about in the context of the investigation. And by cross cutting between them, uh, one editing trick that he does that I think is really effective is he'll like have each of them talk about how they remember the party yes. and then they'll cut to the party. And so like, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis remembers it was her and Don Johnson giving him the cake. But Michael Shannon's is like, no, it was me and my wife who gave him the mm-hmm. cake and like little things like that, that show like they clearly all either have their own biases of like, what they think happened or what they want other people to think happened. Sometimes not even in a way to interfere with the investigation, but just for petty sort of status reasons or just because, you know, they want to, you know, seem more impressive to the other family members. So it's a great way to sort of, you know, go through a lot of, you know, plot setup and introduce us to all these characters, but at the same time, create these great ping ponging events. So you're already, your brain's already starting to work on the mystery without feeling like you need so much exposition up top just to get started. And even with that, when Don Johnson was being asked by Daniel Craig, you know, the maid, you know, was, you know, bringing stuff into the house and, and we heard, we heard, Harlan say to you, you, t- you better tell her or I will. And we were shown like what actually happened. And then, you know, Don Johnson's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, it was just the fact that, you know, she, you know, he didn't want, he wanted me to tell Jamie Lee Curtis that, you know, we were going to take him into a, a nursing home and I didn't want to, you know, all that stuff. And, and I, that's also tied back into the finale too, where it's, it's implied that they probably got a divorce after it was revealed by uh, Harlan's note that, Don Johnson was having an affair with someone else. And uh, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And even though the ending is very much your typical, got to cross off the, your, 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 you know, your T's and your dots with the explaining the whole exposition dump. I thought it was interesting in the way it was presented, both visually and even from an actor standpoint with Benoit Blanc. But I also loved whenever, when uh, Benoit Blanc was like, enter Benoit Blanc. And then like, he'd the like, Okay, look, we we get it. You're you're full of yourself, and then the other guy's like, Shh, no, 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 he's on a roll. Let him finish. <laughs> so let him, yeah, cook. let him cook. I was like, hey, and we've also, and yeah, it was established early on in the film that he was like a huge fan of these like detective books, not like Keith Sample, but the other detective who was played by Noah Se- uh, Noah Segan, yes. who is a regular in all of Ryan Johnson's films, and he's also in the next one too. Is a completely different character, I believe. I love him in the next one. He's so yeah. funny. I did want to hear your final thoughts on the overall film. And out of curiosity, what would, you know, was this film worthy of its sole nomination to begin with? Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. I think it would have been like, because as you very accurately mentioned, it was a pretty competitive year at the Oscars. Uh, there was so much going on and a lot of the masters had like some of their most important or interesting films in a while, sort of all competing with each other. So the fact that it did break through in screenplay is, you know, impressive, but also incredibly well-deserved because I think there's so much craft and care and genuine inventiveness that's gone into the screenplay. It's not just, you know, a per- an especially well-done murder mystery. It's a murder mystery that has something today to say about, you know, the time that it came out that still resonates today. It's, you know, it's something that 
isn't just going to take the easy tropes and find the easy solutions. Like, yeah, like you said, it does do the sort of, you know, the cliche of having the detective spell everything out at the end. But in a story this complicated by design, you do kind of need that and you need that catharsis. And he's smart enough to, again, subvert your expectations, but never at the expense of your entertainment. And I think that balancing act uh, absolutely starts on the page. Yeah, you you yeah, you summed it up really well. I'm really glad it, it got the lone screenplay nomination myself, even though it probably wouldn't have been my personal pick. I still thought there were at least three other screenplays better than this. But it's I got to say, it's it's funny when the the weakest, uh, in my opinion, the weakest nominee is 1917. It's a pretty good lineup, I got to say, especially with Parasite, Marriage Story in there and in Again, I, I I thought Hollywood was like a really well written screenplay for sure, but I'm I'm really glad it got nominated for this. I I, I don't know about you if, at at the time if you were predicting this, but I actually thought Booksmart was going to get in over 1917 at the time, and I thought, oh okay, I guess we'll get Knives Out and Booksmart in here, but I was proven wrong. As as like both being lone screenplay nominees, yeah, I think I definitely what well, I I think you weren't alone. I think a lot of people at the time would have said Booksmart could have or at the very least should have uh, sort of been in there and uh it's it's a shame because i would say that would absolutely be the kind of film that's worthy of an episode on something like here a uh, very sort of screenplay driven um project that in a less crowded year certainly they like to reward but um that's the thing about the oscars it's pretty cutthroat yeah and other years you know you don't get in Either you never get in and that was your only chance or, hey, we'll welcome you into the club in the near future. We don't know. So my other question I wanted to ask was, would you nominate the film in other categories? I know you already spoken about production design, but is there any other categories besides original screenplay? Would you have nominated Knives Out in? Sure. Um, so, yeah, production design would be a gimme. I would say, you know, the fact that we went back and forth on the editing for quite a bit definitely indicates that that, I think, uh, is definitely worthy of consideration. I love Nathan Johnson's score and how it evokes sort of like that very old timey feel while still very feeling very exciting and quick paced. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the actors, I mean, I adore what Daniel Craig's doing, although I don't know that it's necessarily an Oscar type performance. But if I had my personal druthers, I would say Ana de Armas uh, deserved a look in for supporting actress. Yeah, especially when Scarlett Johansson got nominated twice that same year. Yeah, it feels like there was room. Yeah, or and I haven't seen it yet, but I've been told Kathy Bates wasn't really that that deserving of a nomination for Richard Jewell. Yeah. I, I guess for me, yeah, original screenplay, uh, yeah, production design would have been nice. I don't know if I can quite go with score, though, just because I thought the score was nice, but it wasn't anything that it wasn't like as like crucial to its movie, like some of the other nominees that year, uh, say for Star Wars, which is just repeating some Star Wars music in the past. And that's about it. That's fair. Would you, real quick on the score, would you agree with this? Because it's Nathan Johnson and Glass Onion as well. I think the score is far more distinctive and memorable in Glass Onion. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I I totally do. In fact, I I don't know if we had this conversation. In regards to the score this year, I'm not sure if I told you this, but this is so far the only time where I actually like Thomas Newman's music in 1917 yeah it's the only time i ever liked it like that score uh, like any score from him was was that year um that's so interesting I've, I've, yeah. I've liked quite a few of his but um it's an acquired taste i guess yeah and i like my but like yeah yeah just like i said real quick like i said i think the biggest issue i have with him is just like he's always like it's not like the it, it, it kind of suffers with some of the problems i have with with some of this score with knives out for Nathan Johnson, but more, more of an issue with Thomas Newman, where there's parts in the score that are either forgettable for, for Thomas Newman, or they don't fit with the, the vibe and the tone. I'm the director's trying to invoke with us. And 1917 was like the only case for me where it's like, wow, like the score actually works. And it's Tom and Newman isms that he has, where it's like this classical piano, like, you know, melancholy tone it actually fits for a movie like this. I don't know. It's just something that I, you know, I was like, wow, it actually worked for me. And by the end of it, I was like, all right, I, this is like the one time where Thomas Newman actually provided a really good score. And I've, I've been trying to get, get through some of his earlier stuff, like American beauty and finding Nemo and 
some of his other stuff and even the Bond movies he did. And I'm like, eh, I'm it, it kind of um, yeah, kind of grinds to a halt. Sure. Pardon. Speaking of his collaborations with Sam Mendes, have you seen uh, Road to Perdition? I think I tried watching it and that was another score where I was like, no, nope, I'm not I'm not really vibing with this music. Interesting. I was going to say that one's kind of a standout for me. And I like what he's doing in American Beauty, too. I, I've i talked at length about why I can't go back to that movie. But I think on its own, I, I like the choices that are happening there. And also he did yeah. um, Wally. Wally's forever. Yeah, I'll have to revisit Wally because I, I, I remember being in a, uh, a uh, it was like a sound design class and someone was presenting that clip and I was like, huh, OK, yeah, I'm not really the biggest fan of Thomas Newman, but I'll. We'll see what happens when I finish the when I rewatch it again because it's it's been years since I've seen Wally and I've recently been rewatching some of Pixar's older excuse me older films and I've noticed some of them hold up really well like the first two Toy Stories and others don't but I'm glad I watched them just for a nostalgic point of view but yeah like I said going back to Knives Out like I said I think uh, original score I'm sorry excuse me original screenplay I I apologize. Uh, I would say original screenplay and production design would probably be like the only two that I would give the film, maybe. But that's just me. So, yeah, like I said, uh, uh, I just wanted to say once again, Miles, thank you so much for your time on here on the show. Uh, before we sign off officially, is there anything you'd like to plug in uh, to our listeners or where we could follow you, so to speak? Uh, yeah, totally. Well, you can uh, find me on both Twitter and Letterboxd at Miles on Film. That's M-Y-L-E-S on Film. Um, I do most of my film thoughts on Twitter, at least until the site dies or we all can collectively agree on what the replacement is going to be. Um, so yeah, if you, if you want to see, you know, straight out of the thoughts or straight out of the theater thoughts on various movies or links to the very stuff I'm doing, that's probably the best place for it. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram at marvelous miles, but I don't really post there very often. Um, and yeah, uh, every week you can find me on the awards radar podcast. Uh, we usually come out with new episodes every Thursday. And uh, if you want to go on YouTube, you can check out uh, two of my most recent short films, uh, American Exorcist and Once Upon a Dracula. They're both on YouTube under Aftershock Pictures and Chase Capo, respectively. Awesome. Uh, uh, and as for me, you can follow me and the show through Linktree under at Matthew 995, where you can follow along on all of my social media accounts, such as Twitter, Threads, Instagram and Letterboxd. On the same site, I've also provided the links for where you can find more episodes as they're released on various audio streaming services. We just plugged, uh, we were able to get uh, Google Podcasts and iHeartRadio connected. So if you're not able to view this episode or any of our episodes on Spotify, you have other podcasts variety there to choose from. And if you're interested in being in the hot seat like Miles did today, let me know and hopefully we can arrange that happening in the near future. In the meantime, we hope to see you at the movies and take care, guys. Bye, y'all.